Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. Well, can you imagine it? Here we are. It's 2020. We're not even halfway through 2020. Now, just think about this. Does this year so far feel like it's not even halfway finished? I mean, here we are five and a half months into uh, 2020, and it feels like there has been more thrown at us than has been thrown at us for the past several decades. I mean, think about it. We entered into this year as a nation uh, totally divided, extremely polarized, with little agreement, little room for negotiation between those of us on the right and those of us on the left. And yet, we enter in this, uh, this year polarized, and then you add to that an unexpected, out-of-nowhere coronavirus pandemic that has spread around the world. In the United States alone, there have been, uh, at this point, right at 120,000 people who have died, and there certainly will be more. And then, on top of that pandemic, you have the, the, the civil rights, the racial issues that have uh, permeated our country since the death of George Floyd and, and other African Americans who have suffered death uh, at the hands of, of police. These are indeed crazy times, trials, hardships that we face. Then when you add to that all the different individual and family hardships that we face, it's even, uh, it's even a more amazing year that we are experiencing. And yet, have you ever thought about the fact that the Bible, most of the books of the Bible were written to deal or either to deal with or to describe some sort of crisis or hardship or trial that God's people were going through. I mean, even just think about it. The book of Genesis, for instance, an argument could be made that uh, the book of Genesis was written to deal with a theological crisis that was in the world, a crisis of are there many gods or one God and what kind of God are these many gods or one God? Genesis is written to, to resolve that theological crisis. There was also an identity crisis. Who are the people of Israel? Where did they come from? And Genesis helps to uh, resolve that identity crisis. The book of Exodus is written to describe the Egyptian crisis where the people of Israel are held in bondage. The book of Numbers is written to describe the uh, national crisis that the Israelites uh, experienced when they spent 40 years wandering in the desert. You have books like uh, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah was written uh, to deal with the Assyrian crisis. Bab- uh, Jeremiah was written to deal with the Babylonian crisis. You have the book of Ecclesiastes, which is written as a description of a man having a midlife crisis. And then in the New Testament, you've got the Gospels that are written to deal with crisis. Mark was written to deal with the Roman crisis of the uh, seventh decade in the first century. You have uh, the book of Revelation that was written to deal with the Roman crisis in the last decade of the first century. And then all of Paul's letters were written to deal with, with the respective crises in the churches. All of that to say, the books of the Bible were written to deal with or to describe human crises or hardships. 
Now that says a couple of things. Uh, One thing about us as people and the other thing about God. What it says about us as people is we seem to be drawn to hardships. We seem to be drawn to crises. Some of them are crises that, that we did not ask for. We didn't do anything to draw them to us. Other crises are crises that, that we incur because of actions we've taken. We are drawn to trials and hardships and crises. It also says something about God, though, that he would inspire so many of the books of his Bible to deal with uh, the trials that you and I face. God is a God who loves us so much that he doesn't just leave us out there without any counsel, without any help. He gives us his word as, as counsel to help us through these crises. He gives us his son to save us from our ultimate crisis of sin, and he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to deal with these things. Which brings me back to the letter of James. We don't know exactly when James was written. We don't know exactly to whom James wrote. We know that they were Christians, and we know that they were going through some sort of unnamed crisis. And what is interesting here is that James, just like all these other books of the Bible that I've mentioned, was written to help God's people, James's readers, to deal with hardship. So let's just look at what he says here about, uh, about how we're to deal with the trials and hardships and crises in our lives. And, and he says several things in this first chapter. The first thing he tells us is that trials can make us susceptible to forgetting how God can work in our hardships. Look at verse 2 again. He says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Now, uh, if you've ever been through a trial, and, and uh, you have, if you're, if you're of any age whatsoever, you know that trials, it, when, you ha- when you go through a hardship, it, it, the first thing you think about is not, oh, how wonderful this is, or how joyful this is. We think just the opposite. Oh my goodness, how long is this going to last? Why am I going through this? But James says, look, instead of looking at it that way, consider it pure joy. And why? Because, verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, but let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete. Now, what this verse, these couple of verses uh, tell us is that God is a God who, even in our trials, has a plan that he is working out, and he wants to to work in our hardships. A lot of times when we go through trials, we forget the fact that God can even work in our worst of days. The second point that James brings up is that these trials— sometimes can make us susceptible to prematurely giving up. Giving up on life, giving up on God, giving up on the people who can help us, giving up on uh, our own perseverance, our own uh, uh, capable, capability for enduring certain things. Look at verse 12. James says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Perseveres means doesn't give up, never gives up. And he says, blessed are those who don't give up because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Trials make us susceptible to forgetting how God can work in our hardships. Trials make us susceptible to prematurely giving up, not only on what God has done, but on what God wants to do for us through others. 
But notice third, James tells us that trials blur our vision of who we really are. What I've noticed in my own life when I go through a hardship is I, I, become, I become really self-oriented, uh, self-centered. I, I start looking at myself rather than seeing clearly other people as well as seeing myself clearly. And James talks about this in verse 9. He says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Because humility in the eyes of God is a high position. Verse 10, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat, withers the plant, the blossom falls, the beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Trials, James is saying here in this very difficult to understand couple of verses, trials sometimes can blur our vision to who we really are, to a sober and honest examination of who we as well as others are. God wants us to look at ourselves as uh, frail and sinful, yes, but people who were so valuable to God that God sent his son to die for us on the cross. And he wants us to look soberly at our own lives, not too highly of ourselves, as sometimes we tend to do. The fourth point that James makes is uh, found in verses 13 and following. It basically, it's this. Trials make us susceptible to con artists. Trials make us susceptible to con artists. Verse 13, when tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own selfish desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Trials really put stress on us. They put a heavy load on us. And sometimes we, we almost cave in under the pressure of the, of the stress that trials bring to us. And sometimes trials tend to uh, uh, weaken our ability to discern when we're being conned. You ever uh, seen something, heard, heard something from somebody, read something somewhere, and you just believed it because it sounded good, it sounded true, only to find out some weeks later or months later that what you heard and read and thought were true, were not true at all? I remember a few years ago, we had a couple uh, in a church that I was pastoring. They had served as missionaries for a few years, and, and, and they had come back to the States, and they were in their elder ages, and, and the husband died. And sometime after the husband died, the wife, the widow, began receiving solicitations from uh, someone who claimed to be a Christian, who claimed to be a lover of God and a lover of Christ and a follower of Christ and a lover of God's word, and they were asking for financial donations from this widow. And she heard their solicitations. She thought, oh, Christians, they must be wonderful, and they believe in missions. That's wonderful because that's what I'm all about. And she began writing checks to these people, only to find out, and actually it took her children to find out that... This was a con artist who claimed to be a Christian. Can you believe that? A world that has gotten to such a place where people will 
uh, go so low as to claim to be a lover of Christ and a lover of missions so that they can prey on older people who might sympathize with what they're saying. Trials make us susceptible to con artists. Number five, trials cloud our memory concerning the goodness of God. Have you ever been in a trial, a really bad hardship, and right in the middle of it, you think, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this to happen? What kind of God could you possibly be if you're going to allow this kind of misery in my life? There's no reason for it. There's no, there's no possible reason that would be good enough for you to allow such a thing to happen in my life. But notice in verse 17 what James says. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. That is, he chose to give us the birth of salvation, that we might be a kind of first fruits of everything he created. Sometimes when we get in trials, we tend to forget about the goodness of God. And we need to be reminded during these times that our God is a good God who seeks the best for his children. What he said to the people of Judah in Jeremiah's time is still true for those of us who are his people today. I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, says the Lord, plans to give you hope and a future. God is a good God who desires good for his children. But number six, trials make us susceptible to losing our filters. Trials make us susceptible to losing our filters. There are times when when you want to say something, you want to lash out, And everything within you wants to shout out at someone or some issue or something or some group. And yet Christ is trying to discipline us. I believe that that, uh, one of the essential qualities of the Christian faith of following Christ is that of restraint. Not that, not that there aren't times when we should, we should speak out. We should. In fact, I think the silence of Christians is as big a sin as, as sometimes speaking out uh, without any discipline. But in this case, James is talking about when we, when we lash out and we don't think about what we're saying. Verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. In other words, underline what I'm about to say. Put it in highlights. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Boy, have you ever read a verse that is more appropriate for our time than this? Be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry. And here's why, verse 20, because human anger, our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Trials make us susceptible to losing our filter. So in verse 21, James says, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that that is so prevalent and instead humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And don't merely listen to the word, but do it. And, and when you just merely listen to it, we deceive ourselves, he says. And then skipping ahead to verse 25, he says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law, that's God's word that gives freedom and who continues in it, they, they are not forgetting what they've heard, but they're doing it. They will be blessed 
in what they do. And so verse 26, he says, so those who consider themselves religious and do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. You know what so many of us tend to think about verse 26 that says we need to keep a tight rein on our tongues? We want to say, that's what somebody else needs to hear, but that's not what I myself need to hear. No, friends, we all need to hear that. Every one of us needs to take heed to that verse. And then finally, James says that trials can render us selfish, neglecting the needs of the less fortunate. When you and I are in the middle of an oh me, my life is hard, my life is terrible, the, the, the world is against me type mentality in the middle of our crises, we tend to focus so on ourselves that we neglect the needs that are all around us. And so James says this in the last verse of chapter one, verse 27, he says, religion that God our father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Now imagine what he might could have said after he said that. He could have said that you uh, memorize the Bible or that you keep the 10 commandments, both of which would be great by the way, or that uh, you, you never miss a Sunday in church or uh, you never utter a cuss word or so many things he could have said, but here's what he did say. Religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Reach out to those who are less fortunate and watch yourself because if you watch yourself, that's going to take up enough time that you won't have time to judge someone else. Well, all of these seven things in chapter one are really the potential adverse effects of trials. But the fact is trials can produce either bad, these adverse effects, but they can also produce that which is good. And so we could turn these around and say, instead, trials can make us more aware of how God can work in our hardships. Trials can reveal how persevering we can be without giving up. Trials can burn away the clutter and clear our vision as to who we really are. Trials can sharpen our resistance to con artists. Trials can open our eyes to the wonderful goodness of God. Trials can make us, can result in us being more careful about what we say to and about other people. And trials can bring out the best in us in meeting the needs of the less fortunate. Well, folks, we're almost halfway through one of the most incredible years I've faced in my almost 60 years of being on earth. Let's hope that the last six months of this year will be better than the first six months. And folks, in order for the last six months to be better, it may not mean that the crisis disappears or that it evaporates or even that it diminishes. It may mean that we change what we do, what our response is to the crisis. I can hear some folks saying, yeah, if we could just get this world right, if we could just get the people out in the world right. I want to remind you that all those books of the Bible that were written about how to deal with crises, they weren't written to the world. They weren't written to people outside the world. They were written to God's people. 
And so let me tell you that before the world can be righted, God's people, our ship has, has to be set right. You see, I'm convinced that one of the main purposes, maybe the first purpose of a hardship is to straighten out God's people. I guess the question is, are we even going to consider that we're the ones who need to be straightened out? Let's pray. God, thank you for how you work in our trials. And thank you, from, thank you for the fact that just by looking at your word, you, you wrote to your people a lot about trying to help them through their trials. And it just shows how much you love us. You indeed are a good God. And Lord, thank you for not just leaving us to fend for ourselves. What a miserable world this would be in if you just left us to ourselves. We'd make a bigger mess of it than we already do. God, I pray that your people who are called by your name will humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways. Start loving people the way that you love them. Start showing mercy and grace the way you have shown mercy and grace. And start looking at ourselves on how we can improve ourselves to further glorify our Savior, the person, the King we claim to follow. We love you, Lord. Lord, I pray for the salvation of souls. I pray, Lord, for those who do not know you as Savior, that they will take a moment and say, Lord, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that you died on the cross for me to pay for my sins. And I want to receive you into my heart to be my savior. Lord, I pray for the salvation of souls. And I pray for the salvation of our nation. And I pray for the salvation of our world. In Jesus' name, amen.